0: Get ready to tune into stories of average men striving for greatness to become the leaders that are needed in their homes, in their career, and their communities. This is the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast.
1: Today on the podcast, we have Eric Williams. He is a certified marketing guide and business coach. The dude's been married for 13 years and has two boys. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. I'm excited to
0: have a conversation here, talk about life, talk about fatherhood.
1: Yeah. It's so cool how things come together because uh, you reached out to uh, the, the company I was working for and I just happened to grab the message from the Facebook messenger, business messenger. It's kind of, kind of weird how those come in. And um, you had experienced something within that company you really enjoyed and wanted to see if you could help. And I'm like, yeah. huh, if there's somebody offering help for nothing i'm going to reach out to this person and get to know them a little bit right now fast forward here we are i don't know if it's like six months later the company hired you used you i went through that process and was very impressed so first of all good job my man
0: well thank you yeah i, th- I think uh overall man like my whole life's mission and goal is just to help people be generous and to uh figure out how i can use skills to help others especially you know, like the company you were working for and what you're doing here when it's, when it's affecting so many people in a positive way. I just can't help but want to be a part of that and help other people
1: do that. That's so cool. And that, that's kind of the, the vibe I got. And I took it to the, the leadership team. I was, on, I was on the leadership team and I said, hey, look, this guy. And they're like, yeah, what does he want? <laughs> and so <laughs> I said, hey, look, I'll call, I'll call him and talk to him. And because, you know, every, everything is like, what, what, what's, their, what's their angle their angle? And I, I got off the phone and I immediately got on with them. I said, Hey, look, you got to, you got to put down your, <laughs> yeah, yeah, put down your preconceived notions and you have to have a talk and we connected. And it was very obvious. And, um, we connected you with our, one of our, um, one of the gals. And then the rest is history. I think we spent like five hours on the phone going through your system, which is incredible. Um, so I was certainly impressed. I already told my business partner about you and, um, but mostly, like you said, it came from just your willingness to help. Sure. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't a sales pro- proposition whatsoever, never felt that way. And I love it when people um, are like that. So I, I had to get you on the, on the podcast, yeah. to talk about being a dad and what makes you tick. Right. Um, so here we are on the Brotherhood podcast. Uh, tell me about your family.
0: Yeah, so I have uh, two boys, like you said, eight, nine years old, my oldest son, Calvin, and my youngest son, Oliver, and uh, they are 10 days shy of one year apart. So we have for 10 days, we have what we call twin week, where the younger, younger son turns the next age, and they're the same age for 10 days. And, you know, we try to make it fun. And we try to try to celebrate, we end up having like basically three birthday parties, you know, most people when they're so close to another family member, they might share one, but we have to have kind of a one, you know, the youngest son has a party and then we do a family thing together as the together party and then the oldest son has his own little separate thing so we try to do things to keep them separate i'm sure for the listeners who have actual twins uh or multiples right that's that's difficult or if you have a kid whose birthday is close to another major holiday. You got to navigate that. But been married to my wife uh, for 13 years. We met, uh, we actually went to high school together. Um, I tell people, well, she always loves it when I tell people this, but uh, when I first met her, when we were freshman, it was like, I thought she was the most annoying person ever. And uh, <laughs> it's just like funny how that conversation went and how that relationship grew. And, you know, right after um, right after high school was done, we started dating, and then I went off. This was 2001, and I went off to Europe for a month. Um, and then as soon as I got back, she went out to the military to go into basic training, boot camp, everything like that. And then 9/11 happened, and this is the time before cell phones, you know, were available and things like that. And so we were writing handwritten letters back and forth. We had no idea. She had no idea if she was going to Afghanistan. We had no idea if she would ever come back home. And so, you know, our, our relationship was really forged in those first maybe six months through adversity. And, uh, and that's really a theme that is kind of carried out uh, through the rest of our life. When we do uh pre-marriage mentoring with other couples or anything else like that, you know, through ministry and life groups and things like that, you know, I, I tell young couples, man, the, the reason why I'm with my wife, like you could say fate and you could say love and you could say all the other things that you love about it. But like, if I'm thinking about it from a rational standpoint, when push comes to shove, when adversity comes, when, you know, stuff happens, we draw closer together rather than further apart. And so that's really throughout the years, I can look back through our 13 years and just realize um, that that has been the catalyst for, for our continual uh, connection. Again, outside of spirituality, outside of our, you know, mutual love for Jesus and things like that. But uh, other than that, the practical side of it has been uh, really drawing together through adversity.
1: That's interesting. Um, It's very cool. Hopefully when there's no adversity, things are still going well, because that's really the goal, right? Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. Well, and of course, you know, I I tell people too, like, I know no matter what happens, no matter what frustrations happen, because like in our relationship, you know, the typical, um, the stereotypical pop culture relationship is... Uh, wife is super organized, put together, has the schedule, does all the stuff, does the, the finances. Dad is the Homer Simpson or the, you know, the fun guy, the whatever. We're almost flip-flopped where she is, she's definitely the fun parent. Uh, you know, I'm the one who manages our schedule and our finances and all the, you know, kind of more typically female type of, I don't know, talks like that. Um, But what I know is that no matter what, when I want to have fun, she's up for having fun. And so that's what's great is even when it's tough, like it could be like, hey, let's go and let's go do something wild and crazy. And she is always down for it. There's never like, well, I don't know, the kids have school tomorrow. It's like, forget their bedtime. We'll go and do whatever. Let's have ice cream at eight o'clock at night, you know, whatever we want to do. And so Um, it's not all adversity it's also knowing that as stressful and high strung and uh, type a achiever oriented guy I can be I know that I'm always coming home to a partner that is just uh, 100% down for fun anytime
1: that's uh isn't that fun isn't that cool I mean quite honestly like uh I'm, I'm a visionary, uh, entrepreneurial type. My wife is definitely the type A and very organized as the finances. Um, but her middle name is Joy. And and it's so true. She loves to laugh and she loves to mess around. She loves practical jokes. She's super sarcastic in a very loving way. Yeah, And it really keeps things fresh. I mean, it's right. just so fun, right? Because I can yeah. get serious.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and I mean, I'm just glad I found somebody that's willing to laugh
1: at my jokes, you know. So that's
0: that's a bonus too.
1: Oh, dude, like I'm not good at writing dad jokes down or remembering them, but in the moment, it's I'm I'm up there. Yep. My kids, my boys. I have boys too. They're a little older, but oh my gosh, they hate it. They're just like, yeah. Oh my, that is the stupidest thing ever. I'm like, yeah, so good. My wife gets it and she thinks it's awesome. That's right. It just gives me life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah just some things that make us tick, I guess. Mm-hmm. So adversity, um, we were talking earlier just before we started recording and you, you've you really kind of been through the ringer with some things that might put some other parents maybe over the edge. But I also think uh, as people listen to your story, they're going to, there's going to be a lot of relating going on. Sure. Um, Early in the podcast years, I had a guest, a friend of mine, um, Jason Rule on, and he had a son with a congenital heart. I think I think it was a congenital heart thing and early years were really really tough and a little different but um your story it it started with your firstborn pretty pretty heavy so let's walk through that
0: yeah so i mean we were you know uh this is like 2011 and um you know, we find out that we, we wait a couple of years, obviously, to, after uh, getting married before having kids. In fact, my my mom always said, like the two two pieces of relationship advice was uh, wait five years after you're married to have kids and move 100 miles away from your family. So we waited, I think, four years. And then, uh, you know, we were, we were lucky that we were able to conceive right away. And um, we had uh, first pregnancy going and my my wife started having some issues. She was preeclamptic, had high blood pressure, all that sort of thing. So for those of you who are dads, you've probably have gone through the same similar situations. Um, and then, you know, eight weeks or so before the due date, she's just not, not doing so well. And then uh, about six weeks out, uh, I remember I was transitioning jobs. I was switching from one job to another. And I was literally like my last day on the job was a Friday and I was starting my new job on Monday. And I worked at, I worked at a local YMCA is where I was at the time. And um, I was playing basketball with some of the guys, you know, it's kind of last day stuff, whatever. And then I'm in the locker room taking a shower, getting ready to actually go to work. And when the maintenance guys comes in and he comes into the shower and he goes, Eric, Eric, are you back here? Yeah. Your cell phone's been going crazy. We answered it. It's your wife. She's at the hospital, you know, she's in labor. And I was like, it, this is still six weeks out. I had no expectation, you know, the, for those of you who are like, my insurance was ending and then starting on Monday, you know? And so it's oh like, well, you're thinking through what's going to happen. And so of course I realized, well, you know, there's no, no sense in panicking now. So I finished my shower, got dressed, went down to the hospital. You know, it turns out our son was born six weeks premature Everything was great, you know, just that he was preemie, he had to go to the NICU right away. We were, we were gonna be good, you know, all the same things that come with a premature baby. Um, and then, you know, this is October-ish, it's starting to get close to Thanksgiving, it's four weeks or so, and we're going for the key markers that you go for with a, with a premature baby. It needs to be a certain weight, needs to be able to eat on their own before we can let them out of the hospital. Okay, so we knew we had goals. We're, we're working with this little guy and, and just, I mean, so tiny in his little uh, little bed there. And then around Thanksgiving, you know, they said, you know, he's just not eating well on his own. He's not latching. He's not taking a bottle, not any of that kind of stuff. So he's still on the feeding tube. We're going to do a CT scan of his head. Okay, great. No big deal. No big deal. It's probably just a developmental issue. Um, Turns out we're there over the Thanksgiving holiday and and we get contacted by the neurologist and said, uh, well, um, CT scan came back and it looks like your son suffered a category four brain hemorrhage when he was uh, in utero in the womb. Uh, and of course, I, I'm, I don't know anything. I have no idea what this means, you know, and they're walking through and apparently we have four ventricles in our brains, four pockets, you know, kind of in our brains. And a category four means that fluid had filled all four of those areas of his brain while he was still uh, developing. We have no idea what caused it. You know, of course, that causes all kinds of mommy guilt for my wife thinking, oh, the one time that I kind of slipped a little bit, the one time I did this, was that it? Was it... All of the things that happen. And then, you know, as a dad, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to process my own emotion at the same time, trying to keep my, my wife from going down the rabbit trail of anxiety and things that could be on her plate. And as these, as this ventricle has been filled up, as the, wa- uh, as the fluid, which we believe was blood, starts to recede away, it takes chunks of brain matter with it. And so when we see the CT scan and this MRI or you know whatever the imagery is, you look at a typical brain and it's got these kind of X-shaped four ventricles. You zoom in and it's all just gray matter. On Calvin's brain, uh, there were these little holes like Swiss cheese. So basically blood had filled these, ver- these areas and as it receded, started to eat away at the brain matter. Um, and so all kinds of other syndromes that they mentioned off, things like that that come along with it. But essentially, we're over the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, being told by our doctor, hey, you know, you just need to prepare. Um, He may never walk. He may never talk. uh, He probably won't hold a job. He probably won't uh, get married. Like, you're going to have to prepare for a life of um, 24-hour care with him. And, man, Scott, like, we, that weekend, I mean, that was a funeral. We were, uh, oh, paint the picture here. He's also in the NICU. We're at home. So we're like driving every day. I'm driving every day. My wife still can't drive because she's, she's dealing with all her postpartum, you know, high blood pressure stuff going on. She's still not even able to drive because of the medication they got her on. I'm driving her every day, dropping her off at the, at the NICU. I'm going to work, coming back and picking her up. And then we're just going home and we're crying about this. You know, it's just thinking through how joyous this is supposed to be. We're looking at an empty nursery with no baby. We're looking at an empty, empty crib you know, all the things that we had bought waiting for the coming home and just thinking like, it's, it's, um, and, and I don't mean to, to make light of this for anybody else, but we thought it was like, like a stillbirth om- almost we're bringing yeah. home a doomed child. And, you know, at some point I remember it was like a, it was the Sunday afternoon, you know, after the Thanksgiving thing had happened, it'd been three or four days. And I, I just remember we looked at each other and we said, okay, we're done. We're done with the funeral. The funeral's over. Um, now we have to accept what we have right now and move on from what we've been given. And so we're going to take it one day at a time, and we're we're just going to see what happens. And you know, slowly over time, he's starting to gain things. Connections are being made in the brain, and uh, you know, now he's nine years old and uh, he walks. We can't get him to shut up, so he definitely talks, and uh, he's he's got some you know, some occupational gross motor skill, fine motor skill issues. He's had probably two to three days a week of, of some sort of doctor, neurologist, occupational therapist thing for the first eight to nine years of his life. Uh, But from the outside, you wouldn't tell anything is wrong,
1: except he's kind of a skinny undersized nine-year-old kid. Wow. So you, (laughs) especially with the first kid, when you just kind of have this idea that everything's perfect right i'm gonna have this cute little baby he's going mm-hmm. to healthy and it's gonna develop like everybody expects him to so i'm sure that there was some stages of um like i mean denial there was stages mm-hmm. of grief i mean you said you kind of had your own little uh i don't remember what you said but it, funeral we had a funeral uh, yeah um so how long do you think looking back like how long was it really dark for you guys? Uh,
0: Well, I'll just say, and I'm sure people that are grieving with things and going through things and have um, constant medical issues, whether themselves or with their kids, like the grief never really goes away. So, you know, there are times where it comes back up and you just get frustrated because, uh, because why can't he just be normal? You know, why can't we have a normal life? And why can't I do better as a father to, Uh, Meet him where he's at. Why can't I adapt better? Those sorts of things always happen. But I would say, um, you know, that first week was was terrible. And we were in the middle of cold and flu season and in the you know, because it's November, and in the NICU, uh, they weren't allowing at that time they weren't allowing any visitors other than parents and grandparents. And we had a couple from our church that was older than us uh, that, you know, he was actually a coworker of mine and and we were, we were working together and he and his wife were able to sneak past security. I don't know if they thought they were grandparents or what, they just kind of came up to the window and said, we're here to see, you know, the Williams family. And they might've looked like grandparents. I, I always tease them about it. Like maybe you guys look like grandparents. So they came back and I had known that, that, you know, 15 years earlier, they had lost their first child or their daughter had uh, a form of cancer and died, I think before she was two or three. And, you know, they were praying for us. They were praying over Calvin. And I remember them saying to us, Hey, we have been struggling for the last dozen or so years as to why this happened to us and says, but we realized that, that God put us through that experience. So that way we could be there for people like you. And it was like, that was a catalytic moment for me to see that and to say, okay, what, what, can, I, you know, what can I use out of this? What is the purpose for this type of pain in the situation? And I think that's what really didn't get rid of the darkness for me necessarily, but at least gave me a light at the end of the tunnel to go, okay, every single thing I go through now is an opportunity for me to help serve another parent, another dad. And, you know, So anytime I've ever had friends who have had premature babies, right the first thing i do is i try to direct message them say hey i've been where you've been i know it's tough let me know if there's anything like that that you need like i'm i'm here for you and i want to i want to be there for you and you know the other aspect is we just we're pretty transparent especially on social media about the struggles that calvin has um, and our struggles as parents and so whether you have a child that has uh you know diabetes or something else where they're just constantly taking medicine. You're constantly worrying about whether or not their blood, you know, their blood sugar is going to be okay, or they're going to wake up in the morning or how you're going to pay your medical bills. Like, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I know what you're going through. And so how can I help provide hope for um, younger parents or even parents that are going through this right now that just can't see a way out of it. Uh, And so that's really kind of what has helped lighten up the darkness, Uh, but specifically, it was real bad for about a week and then, you know, it just progressively got better after that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I, I my kids were healthy, but I've, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances that have gone through some real real amazing hardships, yeah. real, real incredibly hard things. Yeah. And um, the one thing that seems to be the people that rise above are ones that kind of embrace it the way you did. It's like, we're gonna use this, We're going to use this experience to help others. Sure. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, the couple that came and visited you, it's kind of, we're doing the same thing, kind of starting that whole, uh, you know, we've been there and um, we're here for you. And it was
0: really, you know, uh, I guess it was a gut check for me to know that like they were, and and I can't really remember, but 12 to 15 years past the death of their daughter and still talking about it to that point it was like, it was yesterday, you know, it was like, they were in the room with us and they were, they were grieving at the same time. And you're going, okay. And that also helped set my expectations. I'm like, this is never, I'm never going to get over this, you know, like, it's never going to be like, great. You know, it's, or I should say it, it's never going to be done and where I'm not thinking about it, or I shouldn't set that, that expectation for myself, but more so thinking through and going like, okay, this is a part of my life in the same way as like, my arms are a part of my life. You know, you can't deny it. You forget it's there sometimes, but you can't deny it. And so let's, let's move forward accepting that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I have more to talk about on that later, but okay. um, i have some questions about that. Sure. When, um, as, as a man, so many times men really kind of have their identity in some things, the kids being one of them, oh, yeah. you know, their job, the other one, you know, it, it's a, it's a mistaken identity, but it's, it's absolutely the norm. Um, did that kind of wreck havoc on you having uh it, you know this this child that wasn't you know the norm mm-hmm. and um and how do you deal with that today?
0: It's tough because you know like I said, we have two children, two boys um and f- we have people ask us all the time if they're twins because they they look exactly they're this they're basically the same and uh one is what you would call uh the terminology is neurotypical, which would be normal right. Um, And then the other one is on the autism spectrum and has all kinds of issues and ADHD and everything that's a manifest from his brain injury. Uh, And so, you know, for me, my children are a reflection of me. And that's not always healthy, right? Like, but I I feel that my children are a reflection of me, the way they act is a reflection of my parenting, you know, in the same way as like my job title or how much money I make is a reflection of how how manly I am. And that's not healthy. And, uh, but I don't think that I can, like, I'm not in an emotionally mature spot after 37 years of life to be like, no, it never bothers me. It never bothers me how much money I have, or when I see someone else with a better house or a better car, like that's, that's a that's a temptation inside of me that eats at me. And so, you know, when we're out in public uh, first of all, I'm, I'm naturally kind of, I'm outgoing, but I'm introverted. I don't really like uh, small talk. I don't, you know, I don't, I, when, when we're at a restaurant and the waitress comes by and asks how your day is, I'm always like, Oh, great, cool. And like, let's get to, I want to make your job as easy as possible. And, you know, I know you don't want to do the interaction thing. Let's just move on. You know, so customer service interactions for me are like, how quickly can I help you do your job so I can get out of this situation, right? So going out to eat right now with our kids is, is great. And I'm sure anyone who's got an eight and a nine-year-old, that's probably, you know, two boys, it's probably rough anyway. Now, if you have a a child that's on the spectrum, uh, like like mine is, or is ADHD, or maybe didn't get their medicine, or didn't get their medicine on time, or maybe there was an imbalance in the food that they ate, or God forbid they have red dye number four because that you know throws them way off. Whatever happens, we're at this restaurant a couple of weeks ago for the first time in the last year since we've gone out, you know, with all the pandemic happening, and Calvin and Calvin orders his mac and cheese and whatever. Waitress is super cool. And then she leaves. And as she's walking by one time, he just full of joy, full of energy, full of life, yells at the top of his lungs in this restaurant, where's my mac and cheese? And I just wanted to die. Like, Scott, like you, I I, I how could I get out of that situation? Because instead of looking at this in, in a healthy spot and go, most of the other parents around here understand there's a child in here, right? Uh, me understanding... He's not neurotypical. He's got some issues. He's, he doesn't mean to be rude, but for me, I'm like, Oh man, that was, you have no idea how incredibly rude that was. And if I'm being honest, how incredibly embarrassing that was for me. So it was like, I get embarrassed constantly by these things. And so there's a, there's a constant back and forth between like, I shouldn't be, and I should accept him and I should be proud and I should be doing all these things but the nature inside of me still is negatively affected by that, is negatively affected by the embarrassment that I receive, the immaturity that I have in my own life. You know, any child shines that mirror on you because they act like you. Well, this is like, I've got a little mirror running around. And then I've got someone else that, that physically points at all of my insecurities because every single thing that he does is like something that I'm, I'm deeply insecure about. And so it's forced me to have to look at myself and go, okay, What am I trying, what am I supposed to learn through this? And what are the areas of my life that I, that I really need to grow and learn not only to accept him, but also to be healthy on my own end. So that way I'm not putting, uh, I'm not, I'm not putting my personal self-worth or my emotions,
1: uh, into something that it shouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that's a, it's a, it's an ongoing battle, but don't you think recognizing it and recognizing that your self-worth uh, isn't tied up in that. And the fact that you, you recognize, I am embarrassed about this. This does reflect on me. Don't you think that's half the battle? Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, recognizing is important because it, uh, when I'm at my worst, I'm blaming my kids for stuff, right? Uh, when I'm at my best, I can understand that they are, um, two human beings that have been on this planet for less than a, less than a third of the time that I have right? Less than a quarter almost. And it's like, they're learning. And if I know that I'm not complete, man, how much more grace do I need to give them and understand that they're learning how to get through this adult world um, as two little beings that are not quite equipped for it. And it's my job to help equip them. And then add on top of that, that, you know, I have one son that's already trying to overcome hurdles inside of his own brain in order just to function in society. And so uh, you know, recognizing that in us is important. So that way I know that I'm not always pointing the finger because it, if I'm not careful, I'm pointing the finger at my wife. I'm pointing the finger at my kids. I'm pointing the finger at everybody else instead of looking and going like, the one thing I can control in the situation is my own reaction and my own emotional response to this. And so how do
1: I need to do that in a way that's going to help them move forward? Yeah, that's incredible. Your relationship was kind of forged under fire, forged mm-hmm. in the fire, right? With, with your wife being, um, you know, <laughs> what she was deployed, correct? Yeah,
0: well, she, yeah, she went. So I, like I said, I was in Europe for a month, then she went to basic training. And then, you know, she had started basic training in August, September 11th happens. And so we hadn't seen each other from June until all the way after she got deployed. She, you know, she's going through all this kind of stuff. And we, we just, it was purely handwritten letters, and I would send her. I would send her, do you remember calling cards like 1 800 number oh, yeah. calling cards? I would send her those so she could actually use a pay phone and call me long distance back when long distance, you know, was still charged for. So that happened. Um, and it was just, you know, it, that was a tough time to go through early on in a relationship when you're supposed
1: to spend a lot of time together. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you forge your relationship under this, you know, extreme conditions, this this stressful conditions. And then, you know, four, I think you said four years later, you're having a child and it's extreme conditions again. And you've been living with within, uh, outside of the norm conditions since. How has your relationship with your wife been?
0: Throughout the process. I mean, that's the thing is like, she's come from a background where, uh, her She was, she was raised in a family of divorce, you know, split family, things like that. My, my family is, I don't have that sort of background in my family, Um, you know, and so she's had a lot more relationship kind of issues throughout growing up. And so it's really just been a um, dedication for both of us to go that like when push comes to shove, we, we have each other's backs and we have to be with each other. And so, you know, that relationship has remained the same throughout the entire time, uh, to be able to say, Hey, through all of this, like, okay, who's my default, who is, who's the, the most important person in my life. And knowing that if the two of us aren't on the same page, uh, then there's no way we're going to be good parents. If the two of us aren't on the same page, There's no way mentally I'm going to be in a good spot. There's no way mentally she's going to be in a good spot and we're not going to be very, uh, very healthy
1: overall. Yeah. You, you bring up something that's really near and dear to my heart. Something that I will say a million times is really your spouse. Well, there's no if or but about it. Your spouse should be, be become before your kids. And it's, it's one of those things where you're serving your spouse and by serving and being close to your spouse and displaying that affection and that love and becoming closer, you're actually serving your kids. Yep. Yeah. And I think a yeah. lot of, a lot of families get that out of order.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I've seen the memes, you know, or the posts on social media where it's like, you know, your kids come first, your kids come first, your kids come first. And I understand most people mean that between like my kids come first between before my boyfriend or before my girlfriend, you know, if there's a divorce or something, I get that. But like, uh, the, the thing that was really evident for me early on, on that whole kid parent dynamic was, you know, after Calvin was born, my wife was literally bedridden in the hospital because of the complications she had had. So she's on floor number 11 or whatever, and he's on floor number four. And, you know, I'm looking at, a situation where it was it was kind of she had blood pressure issues it was touch and go there was one part where i was hanging out with her after she had given birth you know, postpartum and and the nurses clear everybody out of the room you know and it's like oh whoa you know hey we need everybody to clear out of the room turned off the lights and there's all these things going on and it's like i i re- remember being in that spot of deciding between my firstborn son who's downstairs in an isolate tr- at you know less than four pounds or my wife who's upstairs, who's going through her own medical issues. And I know people have probably been in worse situations choosing between those two things, but, it, you know, it's, I, I had to make that decision to hang out with her and, and, you know, be there for her. And it wasn't until she said, I'm okay. You go and hang out and, and be downstairs with, with Calvin and I'll have them get you if I need you. And that, that to me was like, okay, good. I had to make sure she was okay first. And then I could go be with myself. Cause there's nothing I could do for my son, right? I the, He's in a little plastic box and they've got tubes and wires and things like that. And so once she said, I'm good, you go be with our son. So I think to your point, like, yes, uh, of course, would I protect my kids physically, right? Like, cause they need something different than my wife who can take care of herself in most cases. Yes. But am I going to make sure that she's okay? Because that's more important uh, that we're together. Cause ultimately that's going to have an exponential of, effect on our, on our kids. Yeah. So I think I agree with you totally, you know, husbands, you need to look out and go make sure you and your wives are first. Don't try to build up a relationship with your kids. It's more important than one with your wife.
1: Yeah. And, and so frequently, you know, kids that go off to college and parents just get to, right. you know, they, they break up, they, they yep. divorce and it's, you know what people it's just as tragic for them at that time as it is when they're young. And the, the main thing there is they've made everything their kids and then their kids go away and they're like, well, who is this person in their house? And they're just bugging the hell out of me. Right. Um, yep. So as a, as a parent of a child that has a lot of uh, needs and attention, how do you and your wife balance, balance romance, balance dating, balance making sure that the right thing stays the right thing?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we like to, like I said, she likes to have fun. And so we try to find things that we can have fun as a family where um, we can adventure together. Uh, So, you know, we live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, we're within a four mile drive of basically uh, any sort of wilderness type of terrain, except for ocean beach situation. So since moving out here, uh, you know, every weekend, Um, We're trying to go on hikes in the summer and in the fall we're trying to go to see something that we've never seen before have those experiences Uh, in the winter now we ski and so like it's been amazing to see Calvin grow from a spot where like he couldn't even stand up on skis so now he's skiing pretty proficiently. But in all of that, you know, the drives in the car are what's like super valuable for my wife and I because the kids get their tablets, they get their headphones on, we sit and we talk about things, you know, and we can do that. This last year has been difficult because of the pandemic and because, you know, you, where I'm at, you can't go to a restaurant, you know, or at least you couldn't for a long period of time. Babysitting was out of the question, stuff like that. So trying to find outdoor activities, again, making the best of it. uh, It's easy to fall into the typical, especially if you're like involved in church or the Christian mentality of like, well, you got to go on a date night once a week. It's like the last year that was just impossible. That just wasn't happening, right? So we say, what do we have? What can we do? And it's, we're going to go out on adventures. We're going to steal time away that we can, just her and I, whether that's in the front seat, literally in the front seat, just talking about things or whether that's like, Hey, they're playing in the river. They're, they're over there in the waterfall. And we're just going to be standing here talking, you know, stealing away some of those times, uh, after bedtime, same type of thing, put the kids to bed and then focus on each other, uh, to try and, you know, keep, keep the relationship strong.
1: No excuse. There's no excuses. Right. There's a where there's a will, there's a way, you know, right. people- if you're
0: only connecting because like we, Oh, well, we didn't go on a, on a date to a restaurant. And that's the only time we could do date night. It's like, that's lazy, you know, stop it. Find something
1: else to do. We just recorded a podcast. I think yesterday or the day before, and we were talking about the fact that dates don't have to cost a lot. Right. They just don't. I used to get so upset. I'm like, I can't afford this. Mm-hmm. These guys are taking their wives out every week. I'm like, wait a minute. When I was 16 and courting my wife, I mean, like I didn't need a lot of money. I was, driving her around we were hanging out we were going for walks we're doing you know these things i i would have loved to have parked so what am i going to do now i'm going to drive around and find a place to park talk make out (laughs) like Mm -hmm. there's no excuse
0: yeah yeah you're just think about like for most of us like think about the hours you spent just at the mall not spending money walking around with your girlfriend and it's like okay or whatever else you would do just hanging out you know and so I think that's the other thing too, is like, we're trying to get outside. We're trying to go on walks. We're trying to do any, any of that stuff. And just because you have kids around, um, you know, find times and areas where they could be occupied by something. Like you said, for us, they only get their tablets when they're in their car. We put them in the car, they get the headphones on and we can chat. Uh, Once they go to bed, we make bedtime early on purpose and we, you know, hang out after that.
1: Yeah. Those are really practical uh, tools and tips. So what are some other struggles, uh, being a, you know, you got these boys that are so close in age. I mean, that's one thing, but now they're, they're probably really quite different.
0: Yeah, but they're great friends. So that's great. They got a built-in friend, right? They, uh, we have, uh, we have an extra bedroom in the house where they can both be in their own bedrooms, but they want to be in the same bedroom. (laughs) So it's like, okay, great. You know, they don't want their own bedroom. They, they, they love their bunk beds. They want to hang out together. If, if, uh, if their aunt or their grandma is going to take one of them, then that's like the end of the world. They don't want to do anything separate from each other. They want to be together all the time, which is great. At the same time, it's terrible because they're just at each other's throats. And, you know, I mean, you, you know how it can be with, with brothers or siblings. Um, but the difficulty for us is, you know, we, we pro, we've always said if we only had one of them, we would never know any different right? Because we would either have a non-neurotypical child who's on the spectrum, who's got all these issues, blah, 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 blah. And that's just our life. And that's just what we know. But we have another child that is almost a carbon copy as far as age and stage of development, who is neurotypical. And in fact, not only is he neurotypical, he is uh, probably more athletic, uh, probably smarter, all of that than his older brother. And so trying to manage that difficulty of like, um, for, for me, like, and I've got my books up here, how to, how to be a gentleman. we got like three different books up here, but trying to help my sons uh, understand the most important things in life. And so for my youngest son, it's really like he's got to live in opportunity to extend grace, to extend kindness, to realize that, uh, Um, life isn't going to be fair because his brother's going to get different kind of treatment than he's going to get life. Isn't going to be fair because, uh, his brother just doesn't get certain things or his brother is antagonizing him, but not on purpose. Like he just doesn't know any different. So, you know, spending a lot of time separately with my younger son, talking to him in a different way, because he can really understand and conceptualize when I'll say, Hey buddy, you know, when daddy spends a lot of time with Calvin working on this or this or this, or when Calvin does this and he doesn't get the same punishment that you get, this is why. And really trying to let him know that, uh, this is, this is the differences between the two of them. And I always want him to know like, Hey, you can always talk to me if you've got a problem with something. And if you start to get jealous, and if you start to get upset, I need you to know that I will always take care of you. And so we try to find ways, um, where, Uh, You know, we, we don't, you don't have favorites, but if you're not treating your kids differently, then I don't think that you're doing it right. In fact, I think uh, Andy Stanley, you know, pastor and theologian and whatever leadership guy, Andy Stanley said, uh, your rigid parenting style will only work for one of your kids. And so you need to treat your kids differently. You need to parent them differently and you need to adapt to what their needs are. And so for Calvin, his needs are different. For Oliver, his needs are different. Calvin is a spender. Every single time he gets money, he wants to spend it right away. We want to go to Target. He's going to buy Legos. He's going to do whatever. He will fixate on it. He will throw a fit. He will just like, uh, he is like a like a 50-pound three-year-old that is just you know, like, doesn't. Oliver is a saver. He doesn't want to spend a single bit of money. In fact, we opened his first savings account. I don't think he spent any money that he's gotten for Christmas or birthdays since he was a baby. And so he put in like 200 $300 worth of cash that he just acquired. And so they're already different. So I need to change and adapt my styles. And my wife and I are struggling through that too, knowing how deeply emotional one is, how deeply rational the other one is, things like that, knowing that we have to react differently um, and really even choose our consequences differently for them too.
1: Yeah. So, (laughs) so good. This is so good. We had a conversation uh, in the brotherhood this week. I don't know if you saw it, but a, a dad was like, my wife, doesn't think I should spend time with our kids separately. Sure. Now you are in kind of an extreme scenario, but you just nailed it on the head. Our kids have different needs and they need different types of time and attention. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you get into the love languages, if you get into any strengths type of thing, Anything that shows the personality types of your children, even just understanding the love languages of your kids. Cause my youngest and I, he wants to play video games. We play Fortnite. I will sit down. We'll swap. We'll play a game. He'll play one life. I'll play one life. We'll swap back and forth. My eldest son couldn't care less about that. He wants you to spend time just around him while he's doing his thing. So he'll build Legos and you just got to sit there. And you can be on your phone, you can do whatever you want. He just wants you in the room while he's doing his thing. And and so it's like seeing them differently. When one gets upset, they want to be held and cuddled and everything's okay. And I understand what's going on. When the other gets upset, he wants a problem solved and he wants whatever it is he's upset about. And so recognizing that in your kids and realizing I have to react differently to each of them uh, is going to be better for you as a dad, but also is going to be better for them and their development
1: too. Yeah. So another thing I love that you're just dropping bombs on us, which is incredible. Um, so understanding the needs, understanding the personalities, love language thing is incredible. Strength finders is incredible. I mean, there's all these different things you can do depending on development. Um, Colby there's things you can do in the Colby test, but like you can't treat them the same. And the fact that you have to like, they, they don't all speak the same language and you may be not feeling like you can connect, Right. Well, it's probably because you're speaking a foreign language to them. Maybe they just right. want you sitting there watching them playing a game.
0: Yeah, I was just talking to my sister. We we had uh, uh, brunch today. We're hanging out, and she's and she's super close to my kids, and we're super close. Um, and we were sharing a story because she was adopted from Russia when she was two years old. Like our family adopted her, everything like that. And I remember that first Christmas that I had. I was nine years old. She was two years old. And you know, I hadn't gone through the baby stage with her. We had just automatic family. She was two i'm nine i'm getting uh i don't remember maybe it was a game boy that year you know it was like 1990 1992 right i'm getting some big electronic piece of thing but i only got about 10 or 12 gifts i say only but i only got about 10 or 12 gifts meanwhile this two-year-old has got a mound of a hundred plus little tchotchke items and i remember being real upset And my parents did a great job of telling me at that age like hey you know, the amount of money that we spend on you, first of all, that's up to us. But second, know that she's getting these things because of her level and what she wants and what she needs and everything like that. Your your gifts are going to be different and the things that you want, you get. And so that has stuck with me for a while. And I have to pass it down to my kids and understand that Calvin would much rather have a $1 or a 10 cent piece of candy all the time you know, and Oliver doesn't want that as much. He wants bigger ticket items, shorter, you know, times like that. And so even understanding that is different. And I was sharing with my sister, how difficult it is for me at times to connect with my older son, uh, because we're not as much alike, you know, my younger son, it's easy. We're going to play video games. We're going to go outside and throw the ball. We're going to do something active. You know, we're, it's just easy to connect my older son. It's just hard because of the reactions that he has. And he's just different. And, and I, it's like, It's like, I don't know which button to press to get what it is that he wants or needs, right? You know, it's like that communication gap that's there that for whatever reason, my wife and my sister are both great at with him. And I'm just terrible at it. And so I I told her, I said, I have to change my mentality and say, okay, uh, for Calvin today, I'm going to intentionally uh, try to reach out and ask him about something he's interested in. Because it's easy every day when I get home, I could just grab Right to Oliver and we'll hang out and we'll be, we'll be great, you know, immediately. But I have to, I have to put that into my brain that today, this weekend, tonight, whatever, ask Calvin about something he's interested in, right? Or spend time with him while he's doing something, even if it's something I'm definitely not interested in. And so to your point, like you have to spend that time individually with your kids, even when it's hard. And especially with a kid that you don't naturally connect with. And it's hard to even say that, but hopefully I'm not the only parent out there that says I don't naturally connect with one of my kids.
1: You, 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 uh, you gave me goosebumps listening to that, but it brought back a memory when I was teaching when early on, early on, I had some amazing, um, uh, internships as an educator and then, um, was also worked with, um, Students who had behavioral and emotional, uh, you know, some things that were really hard, really, really heavy duty. I managed a treatment home for kids that literally, you know, were abused and had become abusers at very young ages. Sure. But uh, one thing I learned was um, three, three times, three times. And so I'm going to oversimplify this. But there was kids in my classrooms early on that I just didn't relate to. I didn't understand. They were, they were, they would act out. They, you know, they weren't enjoyable to have around. Right. Yeah. And um, and I somebody, I don't know if it was a colleague or an article I read, said, hey, look, just ask them about the things they like and do it three times within a certain amount of time. And I I carried that out the first year I taught, which by the way, was um very early September. 2001 is when I started my education career. Um, Very vivid memories. Right. But um, those kids, I just remember, I remember the two that I did that with the first year, very different one was very destructive, um, trying to hurt people thinking, you know, fascinating about killing people and bombs. And the other one was on the spectrum, very high on spectrum. And and I did that, I employed that. I'm like, I'm just going to ask them about the things they like. I'm going to listen and I'm not going to judge, but it's every day I'm going to do this. And it's three touch points. Those are the people I still get contact from, right? you know, 20 20 plus years later. Um, And it was a massive success point because I didn't have to understand them. I didn't have to enjoy the things they enjoyed. But as soon as I showed interest and I made a certain um, quota per day, it completely changed it. And I think sometimes as parents, we're so fascinated. We're, we're, we're so focused on getting them to like the things we like or right. get them out of the things that we don't like that we lose track of the just the connection.
0: Yep. Or there's some marker out there, whether it's academics or other expectations that are put on them in different ways that have nothing to do with maybe their main primary interest. And I think, you know, it brings up a um, an axiom from when, when, you know, when I'm working in ministry, one of those ministry type of axioms is, you know, when you're talking in the church world is like for our volunteers and for the people that that we're interacting with, we want more for them than we want from them. And it's like, I've tried to adapt that into my parenting because it's like, do, am I interacting with my child? Because I want more from them. I want their obedience. I want them to listen to me. I want them to, uh, you know, I want their compliance on something or am i trying to build something in them and for them through this and so that helps me when i'm healthy again i'm not doing it right most of the time but when i'm healthy i could stop and go okay is this thing that i'm asking them to do that they're i'm experiencing resistance is this thing so important or what can i do to build something in them can i give them a choice here can i do something that they want to do you know am i just hungry lonely angry tired and i and i just need to get over myself because i really need to build something In them, And I want to do something for them, you know, and it just makes it a lot easier to make these decisions. Yes, I want them to eat healthy as often as I can and to build healthy habits. But if it's going to make them feel if it's going to make their week for me to go pick them up after school today and drive them to Sonic and get them something for ice cream or whatever. What a win, because at the end of the day, I want them to know that their dad loves them, their dad loves having fun with them, and that the dad wants to connect with them. Not that I'm some stick in the mud who never wants to give them anything, right? And so like, man, take an opportunity to connect with a kid and do something they want to do, even if it's not number one on your
1: list. I, it's such a great reminder. My dad um, wasn't connecting with me the way he always had, we had a very connection, good connection. But when I hit middle school, I became a skater. And now it was about as far, you know, as I was talented in it. I could do it. I was, I loved, it. I could spend every waking hour. So what did my dad do? He's like, Hey, he hated it. He hated it. I get hurt. <laughs> and I was gone. I was, you yeah. know, out doing whatever I was doing. But um, he said, let's uh, let's build a half pipe. I'm like, man, yeah. what? Right. So he spent the entire summer with me building. I mean, we built, we, we, he taught me so much in that time and I was purely invested because he was 100% invested in what I cared about, not, not about him. And he still will tell that story and um, the, the closeness that it brought us. And then also a beautiful part of that was we built it in my backyard. So instead of me going out in the city and town and doing whatever Mm -hmm. I was doing, he had some time when everybody was coming to our place. I think parents need to kind of grab a hold of that and say, and plant that in the ground and be like, I can't force baseball on them. I can't force them to be an athlete. I can't force them to, to love motorbikes or hunting. Like I do, I can expose them to them and maybe they'll love it, but I need to look at what they do and figure out a way to bring that into my circle, into, into how can I get inside of that circle without pushing? And, you know, such an incredible experience I had as a kid. And, um, And I try really hard to do that with my kids, but I think a lot of parents miss it. And I think
0: that's a great point too, because it's like, you have to really think down to what's the core of what's important. And so it sounds like your dad understood connecting with you was the most important thing, keeping you in an environment where you were safe, where you were, you know, what are those core values and those kind of tent poles he was putting in there. And the facade over the top was skating or building, you know, constructing a half pipe. And I think like, Trying to take a step back for me and go, okay, what is it that I'm trying to do here? What do I want out of my kids? And how do I, you know, what are the things that I'm trying to build in them? And how can I accomplish that through whatever it is that we're doing? My, my dad was the same way where like my mom and dad, especially in high school, which was key for us. They said, what do you want in the basement? you know, we're going to get a bigger TV in the basement, right? Like, no, it wasn't like over exit, but like, we're going to make sure that the basement is going to look, uh, is going to be the place where the kids want to hang out. They always had snacks in the house. And I, you know, I just, I didn't really care about it, but my friends always wanted to be there. Um, it was like, anytime friends were over, they would be willing to buy the pizza. They would be because they thought if they made an, an a fun environment for my friends to hang out at my house, then like you said, we weren't doing all of the other things. And the bonus was all of my friends loved my parents and they got a chance to influence my friends in a positive way. And I maintained a relationship that to this day, you know, it's like my, my parents and I are, are tight. I could talk to them about anything. I could go to them for anything because I know that they have my best interests in heart. They trust me. They value me. They stepped into my area of life where, you know, the things that I want to do, just like your dad going like, instead of saying, oh, dad thinks skating is terrible. So I probably can't even talk to him about this thing. Right. Even feign interest, or when your kid brings it up to you and goes like, Hey dad, I just did this kickflip. And you're like, I have no idea what a kickflip is. That's stupid. Instead of going, oh, kickflip, that sounds cool. What is it? Or can you show me? Right. Right. Act dumb and let them
1: tell you about
0: it because they're going to get more excited and you're going to connect over it.
1: Oh, and and uh, hey, here's another way to do some harm: go watch them do a kick flip and then say, "Don't ever do that again." You're not going to be able to play basketball this month if you hurt yourself, right? (laughs) But but my wife and I have discussed this a lot. (laughs) Is we want to make like it is our goal. Like when our friends, when our kids are bringing friends over. We will literally say, "What do you want from the store?" Right. Yep. We'll go get it, and and it, it's not pressure. It's just there, so they go to go grab it. Mm-hmm. We, we're, or, we're the same way. We're gonna we're gonna order pizza. We're gonna go right. Sonic right down the road. We'll do whatever. It, it's all about if we can have them in here. We're inside of their world, and we have a touch. It's not right. that we're controlling. It's not that we're manipulating. We're just right. providing a safe place that has that can be fun. And you're using
0: your resources in a positive way to parent. You're right. Because there's plenty of other things you could do with that money. Uh, But in that way, you're taking an interest in your own kids' lives and the lives of your friends. Like I remember for my sister, it didn't so much happen for me, you know, older child syndrome that I'm bitter about still to this day. But like for my sister, they would take her friends on vacation with them. You know, and try to figure out ways to make it happen. They would save the extra money to make sure that my sister could take a friend. Why? Because she wanted to still take family vacations deep into high school. And even, you know, as she got older, it was one of those things where it's like, instead of going to Cancun with her friends, my, my parents would have a friend take them with them, you know? And so that way it was fun. It would, they still look forward to connecting, uh, over vacation or just connected with parents in general and i i think that had a huge impact on that adult relationship which i think so many parents forget is like like you were talking about earlier uh in 9 and 10 years my kids will be 18 and so at some point they'll be out of the house what are my what are me and my wife going to do at some point my kids will be adults and that means that they don't have to have a relationship with me because they're not under my house anymore not under my rules whatever I want to foster something. So they're going to be productive members of society, but also so that our relationship can grow as they grow. My relationship with my eight-year-old son is going to look different than my relationship when when he's 18 or 28 or 38 or God willing 48 if I get to see him that long, you know? And so those are the types of things that I really appreciate about my parents building that into me. And I think that was forged from adversity too. My mom's mom died when she was 16. My, dad's, my dad never had a relationship with his dad as an adult because he passed away when my dad was in college. And so they both talk about that and they talk about how important it is for them to have the relationship with me that they were never able to have with their parents. And so that's that's imparted in me and going like, okay, I need to try and make sure I'm keeping that end in mind with my own kids because nine years is a short amount of time. And they're going to live a lot more, they're going to have a lot longer relationship with me when they're adults than right now as as kids. And so how can I build into that as well?
1: Yeah, you remind me of something I say way too often, actually probably not even close enough, is that um, I believe we are um, called to raise future adults. Right? If we're raising kids, guess what? We're going to be having a lot of of problems. But um, I think that's a really good thing to focus on like, how, how is this situation, how is my interaction now um, appropriate to help them be prepared for their later life? Right. Um, and, y- you know, your whole story wraps around adversity, around, you know, all these things that have happened. Yet, in what world does a kid grow up and have a um, charmed life where they don't go through adversity? Right, exactly. My,
0: my parents, the number one thing that my mom would say is she'd always life isn't fair. The, the things I heard more often as a kid than anything else is life isn't fair. Suck it up. Those were like two things I heard all the time. <laughs> life isn't fair, poor baby and suck it up. Right. It was those things that were just imparted on me. It was always have a plan B. She would always tell me always have a plan B. And then every time something bad would happen, we would go, okay, what is it that we can't change? And what is it that we can do? And how can we move forward? And, you know, to this day, you know, she's, uh she'll turn 70 this year last year she was diagnosed with uh with terminal cancer in the gallbladder that has metastasized all over the place she was given a couple months to live and you know every day after that after that diagnosis she would tell us, Hey, I'm taking it one day at a time and I'm going to look for the joy today. And so we would FaceTime, we would call and she would ask us, what's something that happened today that you did in your family that you had fun with? What's something you enjoyed? What was something great about your day? And, you know, she's still going through the battle a year later, you know, praise God for that, but it is, it's been tough. And so I've been able to see that example of, of, you know, persevering through adversity from, being imparted on me when I was a child, all the way to now she's at the at the twilight, at the sunset of her life and she's still doing it. And I'm like, that's what I wanna do. I wanna make sure that I am setting a great example for my kids at 37, at 77, at 97. I wanna make sure that they know from the time that they, the earliest memory until now, that there are things that they've been imparted in them by their parents and we believe it and we live it out. And it's not just something you say to get them from, you know, from five years old to 18 years old and graduated and out of the house. Yeah. That's
1: incredible. It's, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It's awesome. <laughs> um, I think, uh, well, I know a lot of men struggle with what they should do and when they should do it and how they should do it with their kids. hmm I feel like we just laid out a blueprint blueprint, like a, like a North star to how to make decisions on what you're doing with your kids and how you're, you know, what, when you're doing it with them. Now we haven't, dis- right. we haven't discussed discipline or, sure. Sure. or these other things. Um, but it's obvious to me, you have, you guys, you and your wife are faith-based mm-hmm. um, how has that played a role? And I, it, you know, at the risk of turning people off who don't believe in that, it's you true. know, Whatever that's your problem, but um, how's that played a role? (laughs) How's that played a role in your in your marriage and in raising kids?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, just thinking through the perseverance side, you know, I just uh, my favorite book of the Bible, my favorite letter is James. I love reading what James has to say. Uh, he's the, for those of you that don't know, he's the half brother of Jesus. Jesus had to do so many things to prove to his half brother that he was divine. Like what would your brother have to do to you to prove that he was God on earth? Right. And James actually led the early church right after Jesus was gone. And so his letter that he writes to that early church, this early church was being persecuted to the point where, uh, you know, Paul, another guy in the Bible had to go around the, the rim of the Mediterranean to collect money from other non-Jewish Christians Christians. christians like other new convert to try and give it to this early church group of persecuted jewish christian believers and he says it very early on in his message he says when you are facing trials and troubles when you are facing trials and troubles use it as an opportunity for great joy which i'm like okay that that's that seems kind of stupid but it's because he's saying it's building faith in you it's building this endurance of faith in you and so for us that has been a very important scripture for us to keep looking back on and go okay when trials come and you know not to get too like greek nerdy on it but like The word for it means like surprise attack, like you were attacked from the outside. Other Greek literature would say somebody being attacked by robbers. And that's how I feel when these trials and troubled times come up. I feel like I'm literally being caught blindsided. So he says that. And then he says, when that happens, use it as an opportunity to build endurance for your faith. And so it always gives me a purpose and it always gives me a direction for what these things are doing. Now, again, I'm type A, I'm an achiever type, I, all those sorts of things. And so it's like, of course, that's natural for me when something happens go, okay, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? And I love that the scriptures give us that blueprint for, okay, this is going to build endurance in you. This is basically uh, an exercise. This is working out for your faith muscle. And the only way you can work out a muscle to make it get bigger is through pain, is through testing it, is through trying it, through going through the treadmill, through going through the ringer. And so when my wife and I, we get in these situations, we have to look at each other and go, okay, this, this sucks, right? This sucks in the same way as running a marathon sucks, as running five miles sucks, as lifting weights sucks and say, this is an opportunity for us to grow. And so what, what does God want to teach us through this? And so over the past year, I mean, my wife has handled so much. Both of her grandparents passed away last year through COVID. Uh, One of them actually had COVID. The other one had cancer. Nobody could be around her when she passed because of COVID. We couldn't fly back for any funerals. you know. So these two people that raised her practically pass away and she's losing them. My mom is going through terminal cancer. And it's like, we've gone through the ringer and yet we keep looking at our lives. We go... How blessed are we that 11 years or nine years ago, we were in a hospital room and a doctor, stethoscope, you know, got his clipboard, real smart guy, tells us your son may never walk. He may never talk. He may never, and we're looking at this little ball of energy running around and, you know, reminding us one to look at all the blessings and all the great things we have in our lives and all the things that we have that we didn't deserve anyway, And then looking at the other side and saying, what we're going through right now, as bad as it is, how is that going to help us overcome to the next time? So looking back and thinking, there was a husband and wife who lost their child 12 years ago that are using that pain to help minister to us. Okay, this situation right now, what are we going to do? Who can we have our eyes open to to look to others to say, how can I say I've been there and I see you and I see the pain that you're going through and I see the struggle you're going
1: through and how can I help? It's awesome. It's awesome. It's almost the running into the pain or leaning into it, leaning into the trials. I think that's what, I think that's what James was saying, right? Like Mm -hmm. just lean into it. Like this is, this is going to be painful. It's going to be hard. Like consider it joy. I'm pretty sure that's what it says. Consider it joy. And I
0: hate that. I want you to know, I hate that because it does, it feels so condescending and so like unsensitive, but at the same time if I could stop and focus on like what my mom was doing, like what are the joyous situations that happened for your life today? Or I know that I dig myself out of, uh, out of depressive situations, out of stressful situations, out of anger situations by looking out to see who else I can help. And so when I look and I go, okay, that's a trial. How can I turn that into joy, whether that's in my own life or use that trial for joy for someone else? And inevitably, it helps me raise above those things that, that we're going through.
1: Yeah, it's so good. <clears throat> and I mean, and you have to look at things that way. If you have, you, I mean, you have a child who just by nature of the neurological damage and the other things who is gonna be quote unquote difficult because it's right. not normal right. by you know society standards. And every time- it embarrasses you. That's a trial, right? Right? Yeah. And it's
0: almost, and it's almost like, like theologically, this isn't really where I'm at, but it's almost like God is going, you want to improve. Here's an opportunity to improve. And I, and it's a test every time for me and myself to go, okay, do I really believe I want to be the person that I say I want to be? Do I really believe I want to be the person I'm praying that God would turn me into? Well, here's an opportunity to make that choice, right? Here's an opportunity to choose joy. Here's an opportunity to maybe talk to that waitress and say, hey, my son's on the spectrum. Uh, He didn't mean anything rude by it. He's just going to say whatever he's going to say and maybe have a good conversation with her or maybe help her uh, have a better day because of it overall. Because the other thing is, Calvin is an awesome kid that makes people laugh and smile. And so if they just get to know him, their day might even get better. And in that story, when we went to that restaurant, at the end, she said, you guys have been great. Great thank you. And I was like, I've never been thanked by a server for being great. You know? And so those are the types of things of turning it into making someone else's day better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's those situations where every situation is an opportunity for growth mm-hmm. if you, if you seize it. Right. And yep. uh, yeah, that's, that's
0: really and cool. And I would look at on the pain side, you know, because you were asking about faith and I think without faith, if I were to look that way, um, there's no purpose for what we're going through. Uh, because it doesn't make sense otherwise. It doesn't make sense otherwise. And I also have a confidence that um, although I pray for miracles, I pray for God to intervene in these different ways. I know that even if he doesn't answer my prayer the way I want him to, that God will never waste pain on situations. He is always going to use those situations for good in some way. And it may not look like the way that I want it, or more importantly, when I want it. But if I can look forward and say, hey, this is why I'm able to move through. This is why our family is able to move through. This is why, regardless of what else is going on around us, we could take a step forward. We may be battered. We may be bruised. We may, you know, take a couple steps back. But at the end of the day, we're going to stand up and move forward because we know that God is going to use this situation for good, either in my lifetime or the next.
1: Wow. Eric, thank you so much for sharing your story, man. I know that I know that there's a lot of fathers out there, parents out there who are, who are going through really tough things Mm -hmm. and need to know they're not alone, not alone. This is not an an isolated journey. All you need to do is kind of open your mind, open your ears and um, listen, there's people going through just as bad and worse things, no matter how bad yours is, Mm -hmm. you're not in it alone. And, um, and, there's opportunity for growth in every situation. Thank you so much for sharing your story, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to the brotherhood of fatherhood podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends, your family, and follow us on social media. If you are a father, make sure you join our Facebook group, The Brotherhood of Fatherhood. Hit the subscribe button and tune in next time for more podcasts from The Brotherhood of Fatherhood.